0: 5 chapter 2 of the mill on the floss this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org this reading by lucy burgoyne the mill on the floss by george eliot book 5 wheat and tears chapter 2 Aunt Glegg learns the breadth of Bob's thumb. While Maggie's life struggles had lain almost entirely within her own soul, one shadowy army fighting another, and the slain shadows forever rising again, Tom was engaged in a dustier, noisier warfare, grappling with more substantial obstacles and gaining more definite conquests. So it has been since the days of Hecuba and of Hector, tamer of horses, inside the gates, the women with streaming hair and uplifted hands offering prayers, watching the world's combat from afar, filling their long, empty days with memories and fears outside the men in fierce struggle with things divine and human quenching memory in the stronger light of purpose, losing the sense of dread, and even of wounds in the hurrying ardor of action. From what you have seen of Tom, I think he is not a youth of whom you would prophesy failure in anything he had thoroughly wished. The wages are likely to be on his side, notwithstanding his small success in the classics." For Tom had never desired success in this field of enterprise, and forgetting a fine flourishing growth of stupidity, there is nothing like pouring out on a mind a good amount of subjects, in which it feels no interest. But now Tom's strong will bound together his integrity, his pride, his family regrets, and his personal ambition and made them one force, concentrating his efforts and surmounting discouragements. His uncle Diane, who watched him closely, soon began to conceive hopes of him, and to be rather proud that he had brought into the employment of the firm a nephew who appeared to be made of such good commercial stuff. The real kindness of placing him in the warehouse first was soon evident to Tom, in the hints his uncle began to throw out that after a time he might perhaps be trusted to travel at certain seasons, and buy in for the firm various vulgar commodities, with which I need not shock refined ears in this place. And it was doubtless with a view to this result that Mr. deane when he expected to take his wine alone, would tell tom to step in and sit with him an hour and would pass that hour in much lecturing and catechizing concerning articles of export and import with an occasional excursus of more indirect utility on the relative advantages to the merchants of st og's of having goods brought in their own and in foreign bottoms a subject on which mr as a ship owner, naturally threw off a few sparks when he got warmed with talk and wine. Already in the second year Tom's salary was raised, but all except the price of his dinner and clothes went home into the tin box, and he shunned comradeship lest it should lead him into expenses in spite of himself. Not that Tom was moulded on the spoony type of the industrious apprentice, he had a very strong appetite for pleasure, would have liked to be a tamer of horses, and to make a distinguished figure in all neighbouring eyes, dispensing treats and benefits to others with well-judged liberality, and being pronounced one of the finest young fellows of those parts, nay, he determined to achieve these things sooner or later but his practical shrewdness told him that the means no such achievements could only lie for him in present abstinence and self-denial. There were certain milestones to be passed, and one of the first was the payment of his father's debts. Having made up his mind on that point, he strode along without swerving, contracting some rather saturnine sternness, as a young man is likely to do, who has a premature call upon him for self-reliance. Tom felt intensely the common cause with his father, which springs from family pride, and was bent on being irreproachable as a son, but his growing experience caused him to pass much silent criticism on the rashness and imprudence of his father's past conduct. Their dispositions were not in sympathy, and Tom's face showed little radiance during his few home hours. Maggie had an awe of him, against which she struggled as something unfair to her consciousness of wider thoughts and deeper motives, but it was of no use to struggle. A character at unity with itself that performs what it intends— subdues every counteracting impulse, and has no visions beyond the distinctly possible, is strong by its very negations. You may imagine that Tom's more and more obvious unlikeness to his father was well fitted to conciliate the maternal aunts and uncles, and Mr. Dionne's favorable reports and predictions to Mr. Glegg concerning Tom's qualifications for business began to be discussed amongst them with various acceptance. He was likely, it appeared, to do the family credit without causing it any expense and trouble. Mrs. Pullet had always thought it strange if Tom's excellent complexion, so entirely that of the Dodsons, did not argue a certainty that he would turn out well. His juvenile errors of running down the peacock, and general disrespect to his aunts, only indicating a tinge of Tulliver blood, which he had doubtless outgrown. Mr. Glegg, who had contracted a cautious liking for Tom ever since his spirited and sensible behaviour when the execution was in the house, was now warming into a resolution to further his prospects actively. Some time, when an opportunity offered of doing so in a prudent manner, without ultimate loss, but Mrs. Glegg observed that she was not given to speak without book, as some people were, that those who said least were most likely to find their words made good and that when the right moment came, it would be seen who could do something better than talk. Uncle Pullet, after silent meditation for a period of several lozenges, came distinctly to the conclusion that when a young man was likely to do well, it was better not to meddle with him. Tom, meanwhile, had shown no disposition to rely on anyone but himself though with a natural sensitiveness toward all indications of favourable opinion. He was glad to see his Uncle Glegg look in on him sometimes, in a friendly way during business hours, and glad to be invited to dine at his house, though he usually preferred declining on the ground that he was not sure of being punctual. But about a year ago something had occurred which induced Tom to test his Uncle Glegg's friendly disposition. Bob Jakin, who rarely returned from one of his rounds without seeing Tom and Maggie, awaited him on the bridge as he was coming home from St. Ogg's one evening, that they might have a little private talk. He took the liberty of asking if Mr. Tom had ever thought of making money by trading a bit on his own account. Trading? How? Tom wished to know. Why? By sending out a bit of a cargo to foreign ports. Because Bob had a particular friend who had offered to do a little business for him in that way in Laysom Goods, and would be glad to serve Mr. Tom, on the same footing. Tom was interested at once, and begged for full explanation, wondering he had not thought of this plan before. He was so well pleased with the prospect of a speculation that might change the slow process of addition into multiplication, that he at once determined to mention the matter to his father, and get his consent to appropriate some of the savings in the tin box to the purchase of a small cargo. He would rather not have consulted his father, but he had just paid his last quarter's money into the tin box, and there was no other resource. All the savings were there, for Mr. Tulliver would not consent to put the money out at interest lest he should lose it. Since he had speculated in the purchase of some corn, and had lost by it, he could not be easy without keeping the money under his eye. Tom approached the subject carefully, as he was seated on the hearth with his father that evening, and Mr. Tulliver listened, leaning forward in his armchair and looking up in Tom's face with a sceptical glance. His first impulse was to give a positive refusal, but he was in some awe of Tom's wishes, and since he had the sense of being an unlucky father, he had lost some of his old peremptoriness and determination to be master. He took the key of the bureau from his pocket, got out the key of the large chest, and fetched down the tin box, slowly as if he were trying to defer the moment of a painful parting. Then he seated himself against the table and opened the box with that little padlock key, which he fingered in his waistcoat pocket in all vacant moments. There they were, the dingy banknotes and the bright sovereigns, and he counted them out on the table. Only a hundred and sixteen pounds in two years "'after all the pinching. "'How much do you want, then?' he said, "'speaking as if the words burnt his lips. "'Suppose I begin with the thirty-six pounds, father,' said Tom. "'Mr. Tulliver separated this sum from the rest, "'and keeping his hand over it, said, "'It's as much as I can save out of my pay in a year.' "'Yes, father,' "'It is such slow work, saving out of the little money we get, "'and in this way we might double our savings.' "'Aye, my lad,' said the father, keeping his hand on the money, "'but you might lose it. "'You might lose a year of my life, and I haven't got many.' "'Tom was silent. "'And you know I wouldn't pay a dividend with the first hundred because I wanted to see it all in a lump. And when I see it, I'm sure of not If you trust to luck, it's sure to be against me. It's old Harry's got the luck in his hands. And if I lose one year, I shall never pick it up again. Death will overtake me. Mr. Tulliver's voice trembled, and Tom was silent for a few minutes before he said, I'll give it up father, since you object to it so strongly. But, unwilling to abandon the scheme altogether, he determined to ask his Uncle Glegg to venture twenty pounds, on condition of receiving five per cent of the profits. That was really a very small thing to ask. So when Bob called the next day at the wharf to know the decision, Tom proposed that they should go together to his uncle Glegg's to open the business, for his diffident pride clung to him and made him feel that Bob's tongue would relieve him from some embarrassment. Mr. Glegg, at the pleasant hour of four in the afternoon of a hot August day, was naturally counting his wall fruit to assure himself that the sum total had not varied since yesterday. To him entered Tom, in what appeared to Mr. Glegg very questionable companionship, that of a man with a pack on his back, for Bob was equipped for a new journey, and of a huge brindled bull-terrier who walked with a slow swaying movement from side to side and glanced from under his eyelids with a surly indifference which might after all be a cover to the most offensive designs. Mr. Glegg's spectacles, which had been assisting him in counting the fruit, made these suspicious details alarmingly evident to him. "'Hey, hey, keep that dog back, will you?' he shouted, snatching up a stake and holding it before him as a shield when the visitors were within three yards of him. "'Get out with your mumps,' said Bob, with a kick. He's as quiet as a lamp, sir. An observation which Mumps corroborated by a low growl, as he retreated behind his master's legs. Why, whatever does this mean, Tom? said Mr. Glegg. Have you brought information about the scoundrels as cut my trees? If Bob came in the character of information, Mr. Glegg, "'saw reasons for tolerating some irregularity. "'No, sir,' said Tom. "'I came to speak to you about a little matter of business of my own.' "Ay, well, but what has this dog got to do with it?' "'said the old gentleman, getting mild again. "'It's my dog, sir,' said the ready Bob. "'It's me as put Mr. Tom up to the bit of business, "'for Mr. Tom's been a friend of mine, ever since I was a little chap. Fast thing ever I did was frightening the birds for the old master, and if a bit of luck turns up, I'm always thinking if I can let Mr. Tom have a pull at it. And it's a downright roaring shame as when he's got the chance of making a bit of money with sending goods out, ten or twelve percent clear, when freight and commissions paid, as he shouldn't lay hold of the chance for want of money. And when there's a lay some goods, laws, they're made a purpose for folks as want to send out a little cargy, light, and take up no room. You may pack twenty pounds, so, as you can't see the passel. And they're manufactures as please fools, so I reckon they aren't like to want a market. And, I'd go to Laysom and buy in the goods for Mr. Tom, along with my own. And there's the supercargo. cargo. Oh, bit of vessel, as is going to take him out. I know him particular. He's a solid man. And got a family in the town here. Salt, his name is. And a briny he is too. And if you don't believe me, I can take you to him. Uncle Glegg stood open mouthed with astonishment, at this unembarrassed loquacity, with which his understanding could hardly keep pace. He looked at Bob, first over his spectacles, then through them, then over them again, while Tom, doubtful of his uncle's impression, began to wish he had not brought this singular errand or mouthpiece. Bob's talk appeared less seemly, "'Now someone besides himself was listening to it. "'You seem to be a knowing fellow,' said Mr. Glegg at last. "Ay, sir, you say true,' returned Bob, nodding his head aside. "'I think my head's all alive inside like an old cheese, "'for I'm so full of plans one knocks another over. "'If I hadn't mumps to talk to, I should get top-heavy and tumble in a fit. I suppose it's because I never went to school much. That's what I jaw my old mother for. I says, you should have sent me to school a bit more, I says, and then I could have read I books like fun, and kept my head cool and empty. Lors she's fine and comfortable now. My old mother is. She ate her baked meats and tatters as often as she likes. For I'm getting so full of money, I must have a wife to spend it for me. But it's bothering. A wife is, and mum's mightn't like her. Uncle Glegg, who regarded himself as a jocose man since he had retired from business, was beginning to find Bob amusing, but he had still a disapproving observation to make, which kept his face serious. Aye, he said, I should think you're at a loss for ways of spending your money, else you wouldn't keep that big dog to eat as much as two Christians. It's shameful, shameful. But he spoke more in sorrow than in anger, and quickly added, But come now, let's hear more about this business, Tom. I suppose you want a little sum to make a venture with but where's all your own money? You don't spend it all, eh? No, sir, said Tom, colouring, but my father is unwilling to risk it, and I don't like to press him. If I could get twenty or thirty pounds to begin with, I could pay five per cent for it. Then I could gradually make a little capital of my own, and do without a loan. Aye, aye, said Mr. Glegg, in an approving tone. That's not a bad notion, and I won't say as I wouldn't be your man, but it'll be as well for me to see this salt as you talk on. And then, here's this friend of yours offers to buy the goods for you. Perhaps you've got somebody to stand surety for you if the money's put into your hands," added the cautious old gentleman, "'looking over his spectacles at Bob. "'I don't think that's necessary, Uncle,' said Tom. "'At least, I mean it would not be necessary for me, "'because I know Bob well. "'But perhaps it would be right for you to have some security.' "'You get your percentage out of the purchase, I suppose,' "'said Mr. Glegg, looking at Bob. "'No, sir,' said Bob, rather indignantly.' I didn't offer to get an apple for Mr. Tom, a purpose to have a bite out of it myself. When I play folks' tricks, there'll be more fun in them, nor that. Well, but it's nothing but right, you should have a small percentage, said Mr. Glegg. I've no opinion o' transactions where folks do things for nothing. It allays looks bad. Well then, said Bob, whose keenness saw at once what was implied. I'll tell you what, I get by, and it's money in my pocket, in the end. I make myself look big, with making a bigger purchase. That's what I'm thinking on. Laws, I'm a cute chap, I am. Mr. Glegg, Mr. Glegg, said a severe voice from the open parlour window. Pray, are you coming in to tea? Or are you going to stand talking with Pacman till you get murdered in the open daylight? Murdered, said Mr. Glegg. What's that woman talking of? Here's your nephew Tom come about a bit o' business. Murdered, yes. It isn't many sizes ago since the Pacman murdered a young woman in a lone place, and stole her thimble, and threw her body into a ditch. Nah, nah, said Mr. Glegg. Soothingly. You're thinking of the man with no legs, as drove a dog cart. Well, it's the same thing, Mr Glegg, only you're fond of contradicting what I say, and if my nephew's come about business, it ought to be fitting if you'd bring him into the house and let his aunt know about it, instead of whispering in corners in that plotting, undermining way. Well, well, said Mr. Glegg. We'll come in now. You needn't stay here said the lady to bob in a loud voice, adapting to the morale, not the physical distance between them. We don't want anything. I don't deal with packmen. Mind you shut the gate after you. Stop a bit, not so fast, said Mr. Glegg. I haven't done with this young man yet. Come in, Tom, come in, he added stepping in at the French window. Mr. Glegg, said Mrs. G, in a fatal tone, if you're going to let that man and his dog in on my carpet before my very face, be so good as to let me know. A wife's got a right to ask that, I hope. Don't you be uneasy, Mum, said Bob, touching his cap. He saw at once that Mrs. Glegg, was a bit of game worth running down, and long to be at the sport. we'll stay out upon the gravel here, mumps and me will mumps knows his company he does. I might hish him in by the hour together before he'd fly at a real gentlewoman like you. It's wonderful how he knows which is the good-looking ladies and particular fond of em when they're good shapes. Laws added Bob, laying down his pack on the gravel. "'It's a thousand pities such a lady as you shouldn't deal with a packman. "'I stead a-going into these new-fangled shops, "'where there's half a dozen fine gents with their chins propped up with a stiff stock, "'a-looking like bottles with ornamental stoppers, "'and all got to get their dinner out of a bit of calico.' "'It stands to reason you must pay three times the price you pay a packman, "'as it's the natural way of getting goods, and pays no rent, "'and isn't forced to throttle himself till the lies are squeezed out on him, "'whether he will or no. "'But, laws, mum, you know what it is better, nor I do. "'You can see through them shopmen I'll be bound.' "'Yes, I reckon I can.' and through the packman too, observed Mrs. Glegg, intending to imply that Bob's flattery had produced no effect on her, while her husband, standing behind her with his hands in his pockets and legs apart, winked and smiled with conjugal delight at the probability of his wife's being circumvented. "'Aye, to be sure, Mum,' said Bob. "'Why, "'You must have dealt with no end to Pacman "'when you were a young lass, "'before the master here had the luck to set eyes on you. "'I know where you lived, I do, "'seen the house many a time, "'close up, Squire Darley's, "'a stone house with steps.' "'Ah, that it had,' said Mrs. Glegg, "'pouring out the tea. "'You know something of my family, then? "'Are you akin to that Packman with a squint in his eye?' As used to bring the Irish linen, look you there now," said Bob evasively. "Didn't I know as you'd remember the best bargains you've made in your life was made with Packman? Why, you see, even a squintin Packman's better nor a shopman, as can see straight. Laws, if I had the luck to call at the Stone House with my pack, as lies here." stooping and thumbing the bundle emphatically with his fist. Ah, and the handsome young lasses all standing around on the stone steps. It'd been something like opening a pack that would. It's only the poor houses now, as a packman calls on, if it isn't for the sake of the servant-maids. They're paltry times, these are. Why, Mum, look at the printed cottons now, and what they was when you wore them. Why, you wouldn't put such a thing on now, I can see. It must be first-rate quality, the manufacture as you'd buy. Something as you'd wear as well as your own features. Yes, better quality, nor any you're likely to carry. You've got nothing first-rate but brazenness. I'll be bound, said Mrs. Glegg with a triumphant sense of her insurmountability's sagacity. Mr. Glegg, are you going ever to sit down to your tea? Tom, there's a cup for you. You speak true there, Mum, said Bob. My pack isn't for ladies like you. The time's gone by for that. Bargain's picked up dirt cheap. A bit of damage here and there, as can be cut out, or else never seen either wearin' but not fit to offer to rich folks as can pay for the look of things as nobody sees. I'm not the man, as you'd offer, to open my pack to you. Mum, no, no, I'm an imparent chap, as you say. These times make folks imparent, but I'm not up to the mark of that. Why, what goods do you carry in your pack? said Mrs. Glegg. Fine-coloured things, I suppose.' "'Shawls and that?' "'All sorts, Mum, all sorts,' said Bob, thumping his bundle. "'But let us say no more about that, if you please. "'I'm here upon Mr. Tom's business, "'and I'm not the man to take up the time with my own. "'And pray, what is the business as it is to be kept from me?' "'said Mrs. Glee, who, solicited by a double curiosity, was obliged to let the one half wait. A little plan, O nepie's Tom's here, said good natured Mr Glegg, and not altogether a bad un I think. A little plan for making money. That's the right sort of plan for young folks as have got their fortune to make, eh, Jane? But I hope it isn't a plan where he expects everything to be done for him by his friends. That's what the young folks think of mostly nowadays. And pray, what has this packman got to do with it? What goes in our family? Can't you speak for yourself, Tom, and let your aunt know things as a nephew should? This is Bob Jakin, Aunt, said Tom, bridling the irritation that Aunt Clegg's voice always produced. I've known him ever since we were little boys.' He's a very good fellow, and always ready to do me a kindness, and he has had some experience in sending goods out. A small part of a cargo is a private speculation, and he thinks if I could begin to do a little in the same way, I might make some money. A large interest is got in that way. Large interest, said Aunt Glegg with eagerness and what do you call large interest? Ten or twelve per cent, Bob says, after expenses are paid. Then why wasn't I let to know of such things before, Mr. Glegg? said Mrs. Glegg, turning to her husband, with a deep grating tone of reproach. Haven't you always told me, as there was no getting more, nor five per cent? Pooh-pooh nonsense, my good woman, said Mr. Glegg, You couldn't go into trade, could you? You can't get more than five per cent with security. But I can turn a bit of money for you, and welcome mum, said Bob, if you'd like to risk it, not as there's any risk to speak on, but if you'd a mind to lend a bit of money to Mr. Tom, he'd pay you six, seven per cent, and get a trifle for himself as well and good-natured lady like you, you'd like to feel of the money better if your nephew took part on it. What do you say, Mrs. G., said Mr. Glegg? I've a notion, when I've made a bit more inquiry, as I shall perhaps start Tom here with a bit of a nest egg. He'll pay me interest, you know, and if you've got some little sums lying idle, twisted up in a stocking-toe, or that. Mr. Glegg, It's beyond everything. You'll go and give information to the tramps next, as they may come and rob me. Well, well, as I was saying, if you like to join me with twenty pounds, you can. I'll make it fifty. That'll be a pretty good nest egg, eh, Tom? You're not counting on me, Mr. Glegg. I hope, said his wife. You could do fine things with my money, I don't doubt. "'Very well,' said Mr. Glee, rather snappishly. "'Then we'll do without you. "'I shall go with you to see this salt,' he added, turning to Bob. "'And now I suppose you'll go all the other way, Mr. Glegg," said Mrs. G, "'and want to shut me out of my own nephew's business. "'I never said I wouldn't put money into it. "'I don't say as it shall be twenty pounds.' though you're so ready to say it for me. But he'll see some day as his aunt's in the right not to risk the money she's saved for him till it's proved as it won't be lost. Aye, that's a pleasant sort of risk, that is, said Mr. Glegg, indiscreetly winking at Tom, who couldn't avoid smiling. But Bob stemmed the injured lady's outburst. Aye, ma'am, he said admiringly, you know what's what, you do, and it's nothing but fair. You see how the first bit of a job answers, and then you'll come down handsome. Lors, it's a fine thing to have good kin. I got my bit of a nest egg, as the master calls it, all by my own sharpness. Ten sovereigns it was, with dousing the fire at Torry's Mill, and it growed and growed by a bit and a bit till I'd got a matter of thirty pound to lay out, besides making my mother comfortable. I should get more, only I'm such a soft with the women. I can't help lettin' them have such good bargains. There's this bundle now, thumping it lustily. Any other chap'd make a great penny out of it, but me, Laws, I shall sell them for pretty near what I paid for them. "'Have you got a bit of good net now?' said Mrs. Glegg, in a patronising tone, moving from the tea-table and folding her napkin. Oh, ma'am, not what you'd think it worth your while to look at. I'd scorn to show it you. It'd be an insult to you.' "'But let me see,' said Mrs. Glegg, still patronising. "'If they're damaged goods, they're like enough to be a bit, the better quality.' "'No, Mum, I know my place,' said Bob, lifting up his pack and shouldering it. "'I'm not going to expose the lowness of my trade to a lady like you. "'Packs has come down in the world. "'It'd cut you to the heart to see the difference. "'I'm at your service, sir, when you've in mind to go and see salt.' "'All in good time,' said Mr. Glegg, really unwilling to cut short the dialogue. Are you wanted at the wharf, Tom? No, sir. I left Stowe in my place. Come, put down your pack, and let me see, said Mrs. Glegg, drawing a chair to the window and seating herself with much dignity. Don't you ask it, mum, said Bob entreatingly. Make no words, said Mrs. Glegg severely, but do as I tell you. Eh, hey, ma'am, I'm loath that I am, said Bob, slowly depositing his pack on the step, and beginning to untie it with unwilling fingers. But what you order shall be done, much fumbling in pauses between the sentences. It's not as you'll buy a single thing on me. I'd be sorry for you to do it, for think of them poor women up in the villages there, as never stir a hundred yards from home. "'It'd be a pity for anybody to buy up their bargains. "'Lors, it's as good as a junketing to them "'when they see me with my pack, "'and I shall never pick up such bargains for em again. "'Leastways, I've no time now, for I'm off to lace em. "'See here now,' Bob went on, becoming rapid again, "'and holding up a scarlet woolen kerchief "'with an embroidered wreath in the corner.' Here's a thing to make a lass's mouth water, and only two shillin'. And why? Why? Cos there's a bit of a moth hole in its plain ends. Laws, I think the moths and the mildew were sent by Providence of purpose to cheapen the goods a bit for the good-looking woman, as hadn't got much money. If it hadn't been for the moths, now every handkerchief on em it had gone to the rich, handsome ladies like you, mum, at five shillings apiece, not a farthing less. But what does the moth do? Why, it nibbles off three shilling of the price in no time, and them a packman like me can carry, to the poor lasses as live under the dark thack, to make a bit of blaze for em. it's as good as a fire to look at such handkerchief. Bob held it at a distance for admiration. But Mrs. Glegg said sharply, Yes, but nobody wants a fire this time of year. Put these colored things by. Let me look at your nets, if you've got em Eh, hey, Mum, I told you how it'd be, said Bob, flinging aside the colored things with an air of desperation. I'd know it'd turn you again, you to look at such paltry articles as I carry." "'Here's a piece of figured muslin now. "'What's the use of you looking at it?' "'You might as well look at poor folks' victual, Mum. "'It'd only take away your appetite. "'There's a yard in the middle on to the pattern, all missed. "'Loth, why, it's a muslin as the Princess Victoria might have wore. "'But,' added Bob, flinging it behind him, on to the turf, "'as if to save Mrs. Glegg's eyes.' It'll be bought up by the hungster's wife at Fib's End. That's where it'll go, ten shillin' for the whole lot, ten yards counting, the damage and five and twenty shillin'. You'd have been the price, not a penny less. But I'll say no more, Mum. It's nothing to you, a piece of muslin' like that. You can afford to pay three times the money for a thing, as isn't half so good. It's next, you talked on. Well, I've got a piece as you'll serve to make fun on. Bring me that muslin, said Mrs. Glee. It's a buff. I'm partial to buff. Eh, hey, but it's damaged thing, said Bob, in a tone of deprecating disgust. You'd do nothing with it, Mum. You'd give it to the cook. I know you would. And it'd be a pity. She'd look too much like a lady in it. It's unbecoming for servants. Fetch it. And let me see you measure it, said Mrs. Glegg, authoritatively. Bob obeyed, with ostentatious reluctance. See what there is over measure, he said, holding forth the extra half-yard, while Mrs. Glegg was busy examining the damaged yard, and throwing her head back to see how far the fault would be lost on a distant view. I'll give you six shilling for it, she said throwing it down with the air of a person who mentions an ultimatum. Didn't I tell you now, Mum, as it had hurt your feelings to look at my pack? That damaged bit's turned your stomach now. I see it has, said Bob, wrapping the muslin up with the utmost quickness, and apparently about to fasten up his pack. You're used to seeing a different sort of article carried by packmen when you lived at the stone house. Pax has come down in the world, I told you that. My goods are for common folks. Mrs. Pepper will give me ten shillings for that muslin, and be sorry as I didn't ask her more. Such articles answer either wearing. They keep their color till the threads melt away in the wash tub, and that won't be while I'm a un. Well, seven shilling, said Mrs. Gleick. "'Put it out o' your mind, Mum, now do,' said Bob. "'Here's a bit of net, then, for you to look at before I tie up my pack, "'just for you to see what my trade's come to, spotted and sprigged. "'You see, beautiful, but yellow. It's "'Been lying. by and got the wrong colour. "'I could never have bought such net if it hadn't been yellow. Laws, it's took me a deal of study to know the value of such articles.' When I began to carry a pack, I was as ignorant as a pig. Net or calico was all the same to me. I thought them things the most valley was the thickest. I was took in dreadful, for I'm a straightforward chap. Up to no tricks, Mum. I can only say my nose is my own, for if I went beyond, I should lose myself pretty quick. And I give five and eightpence for that piece of net. If I was to tell you anything else, I should be telling you fibs, and five and eightpence I shall ask for it. Not a penny more, for it's a woman's article, and I like to accommodate the women. Five and eightpence for six yards, as cheap as if it was only the dirt on it was paid for. I don't mind having three yards of it, said Mrs. Glegg. Why, there's but six altogether, said Bob no mum it isn't worth your while you can go to the shop tomorrow and get the same pattern ready whitened it's only three times the money what's that to a lady like you he gave an emphatic tie to his bundle come lay me out that muslin said mrs glegg here's eight shilling for it you will be joking said bob looking up with a laughing face I see you was a pleasant lady when I first come to the winder. Well, put it me out, said Mrs. Glegg, peremptorily. But if I let you have it for ten shilling, Mum, you'll be so good as not telling nobody. I should be a laughing stock. The trade you'd hoot me, if they knowed it. I'm obliged to make believe, as I ask more, nor I do, for my goods, else they'd find out I was a flat. I'm glad you don't insist upon buying the net, for then I should have lost my two best bargains for Mrs. Pepper of Fib's End, and she's a rare customer. Let me look at the net again," said Mrs. Glegg, yearning after the cheap spots and sprigs. Now they were vanishing. Well, I can't deny you, Mum," said Bob, handing it out. "Eh, hey, see what a pattern now—real lace and goods." Now, this is the sort of article I'm recommending, Mr. Tom, to send out. Laws, it's the finer thing for anybody as got a bit of money. These lace and goods you'd make, it breed like maggots. If I was a lady with a bit of money, why, I know one as put thirty pounds into them goods. A lady with a cork leg, but as sharp, you wouldn't catch her runnin' her head into a sack. She'd see her way clear out of anything afore she'd be in a hurry to start. Well, she let out thirty pounds to a young man in the drapery line, and he laid it out, a lace and goods. And a cargoes of my acquaintance, not salt, took em out. And she got her eight percent first go-off. And now you can't hold her, but she must be sending out cargies with every ship. Till she's gettin' as rich as a dew. Bucks, her name is, she doesn't live in this town. Now then, mum, if you'll please to give me the net. Here's fifteen shillings, then, for the two, said Mrs. Glee. But it's a shameful price. Nay, no, mum, you'll never see that when you're up your knees in church, at five years' time. I'm making you a present of the articles I am indeed. That eightpence. "'Shaves off my profits, as clean as a razor. "'Now, then, sir,' continued Bob, shouldering his pack, "'if you please, I'll be glad to go and see about making Mr. Tom Sporton. "'Ah, uh, I wish I'd got another twenty pound to lay out my soon. "'I shouldn't stay to say my catechism afore I know what to do with.' "'Stop a bit, Mr. Glegg,' said the lady.' as her husband took his hat. You never will give me the chance of speaking. You'll go away now, and finish everything about this business, and come back and tell me it's too late for me to speak, as if I wasn't my nephew's own aunt, and the head of the family on his mother's side, and laid my guineas all full weight for him, as he'll know who to respect when I'm laid in my coffin. Well, Mrs. G say what you mean said mr g hastily well then i desire as nothing may be done without my knowing i don't say as i shan't venture twenty pounds if you'd make out as everything's right and safe and if i do tom concluded mrs glegg turning impressively to her nephew i hope you'll allays bear it in mind and be grateful for such an aunt I mean you to pay me interest, you know. I don't approve of giving. We never looked for that in my family. Thank you, Aunt, said Tom, rather proudly. I prefer having the money only lent to me. Very well. That's the Dodson spirit, said Mrs. Glegg, rising to get her knitting with the sense that any further remark after this would be Batho's. Salt! the eminently briny chap, having been discovered in a cloud of tobacco smoke at the anchor tavern, Mr. Glegg commenced inquiries, which turned out satisfactorily enough to warrant the advance of the nest egg, to which Aunt Glegg contributed twenty pounds. And in this modest beginning you see the ground of a fact which might otherwise surprise you, namely tom's accumulation of a fund unknown to his father that promised in no very long time to meet the more tardy process of saving and quite cover the deficit when once his attention had been turned to this source of gain tom determined to make the most of it and lost on opportunity of obtaining information And extending his small enterprises. In not telling his father, he was influenced by that strange mixture of opposite feelings which often gives equal truth to those who blame an action and those who admire it. Partly it was that disinclination to confidence which is seen between near kindred, that family repulsion which spoils the most sacred relations of our lives. Partly, it was the desire to surprise his father with a great joy. He did not see that it would have been better to soothe the interval with a new hope, and prevent the delirium of a too sudden elation. At the time of Maggie's first meeting with Philip, Tom had already nearly a hundred and fifty pounds of his own capital, and while they were walking by the evening light in the red deeps, he, by the same evening light, was riding into Lacey, proud of being on his first journey on behalf of Guest and Co., and revolving in his mind all the chances that by the end of another year he should have doubled his gains." lifted off the obloquy of debt from his father's name, and perhaps, for he should be twenty-one, have got a new start for himself on a higher platform of employment. Did he not desire it? He was quite sure that he did. End of Book 5 Chapter 2